What follows is a dialogue between myself and Toby about the life and times of Director Thomas Arlington of the NIA. These are our thoughts about his world and his efforts as we travel through space and time, through the window. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to your friends Greg and Toby on Through the Windor, where we are going to be talking about part two of the Cartographer's Handbook. It feels weird to like try and differentiate out part one and part two because it's, at this we're point we're overlapping the chapters. Like we're still talking about the same parts of the book. It's just that we're viewing them from a different angle. Exactly, and you'll all will have heard three episodes now where we're discussing what we considered part one, which is the manifesto part of the book. Now, this section is going to be instead titled Dramatis Personae, where we are going to get in deep with the pure aspect of the storytelling of the vignettes as opposed to the handbook as whole. Part and then, one's looking at function, and part two is looking more at thematics. So. Well, thematics and the kind of stuff that we would normally get into in any standard narrative. Mm. It's just more complicated because all of these vignettes, by dint of the fact that they are vignettes, are separate from each other, and so therefore kind of have to be talked about by themselves. And, and yet they do they are nevertheless brought together as a single narrative. So you kind of have to do a juggling act of judging them both individually and also considering what connecting themes and ideas do exist there. Yeah, basically. As has been alluded to in the past, in order to prepare for these sessions, there is always a certain amount of writing beforehand in terms of setting up what we are trying to establish for the purposes of our conversation and me throwing at Toby the ideas that I'm interested in discussing off the top, at which point he often sends me a long written out response to many of Mm. these things. And that is the baseline from which we are going to work from. But obviously, as has been seen in the past, the content of the show is not simply what we have written. It is merely a beginning framework for expanding the conversation. Mm-hmm. So even though uh, we have like five pages of notes at this point, thanks to my proposal and Toby's disposal, so to speak, with these ideas. Greg, I think it's actually eight. Oh, God. <laughs> The point is, is that we are not necessarily going to be reading off everything from these notes. We often never do, mm. but they are at the very least going to provide some degree of pre-written material, which we will talk about, and the conversation will likely spiral off from there. Yes, so, I mean, could you imagine if we had scripted out every single thing we say in these things, including what I just said, and that, <laughs> and that, and this? 
I don't even know why I'm writing this. It's just giving me more material. Wait, I didn't write this. Scratch that. Oh no, the, the text has taken a life of its own. Ah. Do you think the scene should have been cut? We were so worried when the boys were writing it. But now we're glad. It's better than some of the previous scenes, I think. Get on with it! So, let's get right to it. Now that we have discussed the drier manifesto elements of the handbook, it's time that we start discussing the more complicated story elements of said handbook, specifically what is revealed through the individual vignettes of the various characters that inhabit it. Some of these people we will see again, and some of these people, well, their stories end in this very same account. Some of the characters will be folks that we have already touched on in Secret Rooms, and some of them will be characters who pop up again shortly in Arlington, or even further down the road in later novels. But even in these vignettes, one should take into account that the handbook is even less a linear story than some of the books we have covered previously. And in fact, as we have alluded to, occupies a liminal space between secret rooms in Arlington. It's connective tissue that gives us a foundation for the events that brought us to this point, fills in the gaps, and most importantly, provides the backstory for the man that will be front and center in the eponymous novel to follow, Arlington. That said, let's begin with some of the smaller stories. This specifically referring to several of the vignettes that are considered the past of the cartographer's handbook, or more specifically of New Century as it takes place in the U.S., which encapsulates mostly the stuff that is written in sections four and five, back when the plague was spreading but not yet overwhelming. Mm. And these accounts give light on how the response to the Wendigo was still unequal to the danger that was coming. It shows how the ignorance and baseness of others contributed to said spread, and caused needless harm on top of that, both among citizens and military. Because it harkens back to an earlier time, it also brings front and center both the casualness of how slurs are used for the black population, specifically from Maggie Struther and Henry Jackson, and how fear caused the white population to direct violence upon said population. The question I ended up asking Toby was, how do these stories split the difference between providing information and invoking empathy? Do you think that these stories are included because they feel the need to strike a balance between showing the foolishness of their actions while still showing characters that white people can sympathize with? And is this the right course? All right. <laughs> so, um, Dear listeners, I did go off quite a bit on each of these points. I have this is why our document is eight pages long. So, Greg, if at any point I am running long and you would like to interrupt me, please do, or even just tell me to shut up. I I'm will not, happily acquiesce. I'm not going to say shut up, Toby. Um, <laughs> although now that I've said that, I feel like 
maybe there's going to be a running gag at some point where I'm just going to say, shut up, Toby. Um, we'll see how that <laughs> actually ends up going. <laughs> but All right. um, yeah, go ahead and uh, start to answer those complicated questions I asked you. Mm, well, luckily, I'm very short and to the point. Anyway, <laughs> something I picked up on with my latest re-listen to these sections is that Thomas says before Maggie Struthers' account that although her use of the word ghoul goes against the book's expressed goal of offering a unified term to refer to the Wendigos, they have chosen to leave the word as is, wishing to better reflect the feeling at the time. Those are the exact words that Thomas uses. And while this statement is nominally referring to the word ghoul, I suspect that we're meant to extrapolate as readers and listeners to the narrative that this statement also applies to the usage of the N-word, both from an in-universe point of view for Thomas as he's editing this book and for Alex as he's putting this book together. So, yes, it is very much there to kind of show that characters like Maggie who use the N-word in the final version of the handbook, this is there to reflect the attitude of the time or feelings that were there at the time for certain people. And I think that it is right that each case of assumptions being made that the source of the infection was the black population is shown to be inarguably uninformed and misguided. Like Maggie tells us it wasn't just a white man, but a white soldier, a standing that by all rights at the time should have engendered a certain amount of respect and admiration from this kind of environment. And Henry Jackson's story is repeatedly offered by him with the intention of quelling any and all destructive assumptions and biases from those that would target black people, thinking that the troubles of their lives are a result of their presence, which is an attitude that I think you can see is not just applicable to the fictional scenario of the endemic of the Wendigo. No. Mm. Yeah, like, I... Um... <laughs> That's the right response, yeah. <laughs> well, okay, I, I, I would dovetail off from that a little bit in saying that the feelings about having white populations blame non-white populations for all kinds of stuff mm -hmm. is something that is still very much present in 2021 and that has never gone away and mm -hmm. the only thing that has changed a little bit in the last five years specifically with the advent of trump is something i feel like i I don't know if I want to share it as being part of our podcast, but I would encourage other people to listen to the YouTube video that Ian Danskin did on the death of the euphemism, where Trump was basically one of the first people to do away with coded language that allowed Republicans to talk about issues that would speak to the far right base mm. without disillusioning moderates or even potentially by trying to bring on people that would normally be on the other side of the fence by trying to making them seem reasonable and in trump's case he was specifically 
saying no by doing away with the euphemism of states' rights and taking away white people's jobs. Took our jobs! They took our jobs! They took our jobs! Trump was basically now saying outright that by no longer using coded language, he considered the far right to be the base of the Republican Party. His base. He didn't care about keeping the people that didn't want to be honest about their racism comfortable, and they would be expected to either fall in line with the far right or be considered an enemy, along with all Democrats and progressives and far-left thinkers. Mm. Uh, and obviously I've gone off onto a little bit of a tangent that is not New Century related, but... So let's let's try and it, bring it, it bears mentioning. Bit. Yes. Yeah, it does. It it does. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The podcast got political again. People, can you handle that? <sighs> we we will continue to make that joke as often as it is relevant. It's always relevant. That's so... a secret cap. It's always relevant. <laughs> oh my god, that's really applicable. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. I mentioned that uh, the book is framing people who use this word or occasions where people use this word. It's associated with incorrect assumptions and the, the text is explicitly calling attention to that. So there is undeniably a constructive intention there. Mm. But even so, I think I don't entirely hold to having fiction where white characters that elicit some level of empathy to them do use this word. I get the reasoning. Cartographer's Handbook was written and is presented with the intention of appearing as an historical document, not including some of the ugly realities of the time and the mindset of some of the people, and it certainly runs the risk of reading as insincere. But in light of the rest of New Century, or at least the stories taking place in Centrum in the reunified states, which take on the status of alternate history fiction much more fully, the ugly inclusions of cartographers that uh, that cartographer's handbook rather that appear to be a result of chasing this identity as historical documentation become much more unpleasant and extraneous. It sticks out and. I'm glad we didn't have any of the ongoing characters whose story we would have to become invested in or would come to be invested in use language like characters like Maggie Struthers use. It's just so hard when it's language as loaded and barbed as that particular slur because uttering that word even once does forever stick to a character mm. and it's baggage that may or may not have a case here within the confines of what cartographer's handbook is striving to be as a sort of an approximation of a historical document but it doesn't really have a place in my mind for what the rest of new century has become so a couple responses to that um yeah. obviously the book as being a piece of fiction that is aimed at us, the real world audience, mm -hmm. definitely does have that feel mm -hmm. of being a historical document. In, in fact, one of the ways that Alex put it out as being a, a way to consume it years and years ago when this was one of the first things that he created and was trying to promote it was specifically 
putting it out like a documentary on YouTube and mm. adding a whole lot of extra content to it, specifically in the form of visuals that people could watch while the already recorded audio drama played out for people. But also some additional bits were recorded to make it sound like there was a documentary narrator introducing us to the world of this alternate new century history, so to speak. Of course, whenever you talk about alternate history, you run into the problems of people trying to claim historical accuracy in terms of why certain things like racism should be present. Often, this stuff is bad faith arguments, especially when it is used in cases like Skyrim or Game of Thrones or The Witcher 3. In these media instances, the world may have some basis in the way things were back at certain historical times, but the worlds themselves are purely fictional. There is no actual historical Westeros or Skyrim at play. Here, the argument about depicting things accurately has some weight, because it's talking about actual Earth history. Specifically, a change in the timeline around the time of Reconstruction after the Civil War. Now, New Century is still fiction, and if done wrong, then you can have an issue in line with what Dan Olson would refer to as the Thermian argument, which I will include a link to in the show notes. For the purposes of our show, Toby and I are less concerned about that issue, because conversations on race relations are a major theme in New Century and they especially need to be talked about accurately in order to be honest about the way sentiments were back then, especially as they relate to how they are now. Toby and I may be uncomfortable, and that is intended. These stories will also make other audience members uncomfortable in this book and Arlington, and in many books to follow as relate to colonialism, racism, sexism, and many similar topics. If Toby and I argue at all about how things are depicted in these books, it's in asking how far you should take the realism. How long do we stare at the abyss? How long does it stare back at us? In a lot of cases, Alex strikes that balance well, but that doesn't mean that Toby and I won't still discuss it and question our own assumptions, because the line will be different for every new audience member, and it's important that we talk about that. The reason I bring this up, as opposed to a historical document, is to actually bring it back to the conversation about it being, in-universe, a piece of propaganda, a manifesto. Mm. And therefore, there are two things that occurred to me when re-listening to, rereading a lot of these accounts, as well as taking an extra step to like figure out the places that these people came from, by and large, the accounts that are present in the handbook are of white people. Mm. There are only a few exceptions to that. Obviously, Thomas's story is the first of those. Excuse me. Is, is it the first of those? It's the most prominent of them, at the very least, and it stands out because we also know that this is a story that was not actually included in the first printing, and mm. is the second printing, who, the timeline, the history of that coming out, we will see playing out 
in Arlington. But aside from that, the only person that is recognizably not pure white would be Carmen Santos right at the very end. Mm. Someone that has a recognizable accent and a Latino last name that has them stand out. Everybody else either sounds Southern or in the case of one of the characters, I think we've established now that the uh, Harriet Blaine was Scottish based. Uh, on, we had a whole conversation about this. This on, was not, I believe Scottish was what I said, but on the discord, uh, Alex clarified that. Okay. I'm just going to do a little quick check to make sure that it. Irish. Irish. Yes. Okay. Yes. Fair enough. But that's, that's still pretty white. It, it's, a, it's a descendants and a cultural identity that while it's had its own issues in terms of inclusion in the U.S., mm. it's still not the same as deliberately non-white people, such as anyone of Asian descent, black people, Mexican people, the like, mm. all of that sort of thing. Honestly, part of me wonders if the bulk of the cartographers that would be going out into the world and making contact with these enclaves and everything like that, whether they would have specifically also been picked to be white people or to be white passing people in order to avoid potential diplomatic conflict with mm. what is very likely mostly white enclaves that are surviving, considering literally the stories that we are talking about right now where black populations were killed by terrified white people. Mm. Um, it feels like there's a deliberate purpose in the picking of the voices that are present in the book and very possibly the picking in the voices that would be reading it to the displaced communities that Arlington is trying to bring back together mm. uh, as opposed to showing a true diversity which Arlington encourages in the book but doesn't force people to come to terms with just yet I suspect mm. uh, it's almost like he's doing the trick of giving the medicine but wrapped in like something quite uh, like a treat or something like that it's, at, it's at not necessarily least... a treat but it's palatable i wouldn't necessarily call it a spoonful of sugar so to speak um mm. but i would definitely agree that it feels likely that they would have gone out of their way to try and make it as easy as possible for people to as easy as possible for people to want to come on board specifically mm. and therefore it comes as a certain amount of irony that as we're going to see later on down the line, there was pushback in terms of the things that Arlington wanted to include as a part of the second printing <laughs> and why they were worrisome about including these things, never mind some of the things that were actually in the first printing. Mm. Coming back to Maggie's story in particular, first of all, you end up talking a lot about the n-word not just because of its place as a loaded term but kind of a little bit as the identifier wherein if someone uses that kind of word 
they're not worried about euphemism. They're mm. more than happy to be, be quite upfront about the way that they feel about black people and their dislike of them. They're looking down at them, the raising up of their own superiority and everything like mm. that. And when I say that use of the word is always jarring and feels problematic, um, it's not really necessarily about the word itself, but that it immediately lets us know how we're supposed to feel about these people to begin with. Mm. At the very least, it, it colors how we feel about them, as you said a moment ago. Yeah, so, and it's such a sharp word to use with a, like for a character to express it because as you say it gets rid of any pretense of uh, walking around things it is very direct it cuts through to exactly what the character wants to say and also how we should feel about the character and it just it sticks out but it also i used the word barbed earlier and it's because mm. it does actually once it's uttered it just sticks to both the character who says it but also to us for having been like inflicted to hear it essentially mm. yeah something that comes to mind way back when is the way that toby and i responded to mayor caleb buck in secret rooms he never uses the n-word but he uses a different word that in modern terms has a negative association with it. Mulatto. The irony about Buck is that it feels like he does try very hard to be charismatic and diplomatic, presenting himself as being reasonable. But every other word he does use, even without using the worst slur, shows us exactly who he is and belies any attempt at making him seem like a moderate, particularly in how he talks to Maggie Sampson herself. Even now, I remember how Matt Wardle talked about how difficult it was to voice Buck, how using the language Buck uses made him feel unclean. Meanwhile, Maggie uses the worst word twice, and while much of her story does not further discuss her feelings about non-white people, it nonetheless sticks like the barb Toby suggested throughout the story of the calamity that befell her community. The reason that I bring this up is that Maggie Struthers' story, in particular, is one that I have a hard time revisiting, mm -hmm. re-listening to for that very reason. Mm. But because I knew this was going to be the first one we were going to be talking about as a part of our discussion of the characters, I went back in and I re-listened in parts, I reread in parts, I immersed myself back into that account a little bit more. One of the things that I realized in the process of this is that her story is the first story that feels like it could literally be a scene from a horror movie. Mm. Or not even just a scene, but like a sequence of events mm. that could be part of a horror movie. It's let them go in microcosm to a mm. certain extent, except that let them go is filled with sympathetic characters. 
and mm. only has one that really sets us on edge. Here, Maggie Struther is the narrator of what happens. And if her personal beliefs are any indication of the community that she is a part of, then as the horror narrative sort of plays out where the Wendigo, the ghoul, first comes in and attacks one of the women and inflicts the wound that eventually brings them to the point where they change themselves and therefore start uh, wounding other members of the community and causing them to change over the course of just like a day or so. You can't not read her story and feel some degree of empathy for what they're facing, Mm. but it's always going to be colored by the fact that these are people that potentially only have empathy for people that look like them. Mm. And so therefore, when I say that this feels like a horror narrative, one could almost say that it's the kind of horror narrative in which you might not necessarily feel sad for the fact that the monster in this case is killing people that we don't necessarily like. Mm. In a lot of monster texts or like horror texts out there, the monster is kind of indicative of some emerging issue or sickness that existed within like a culture you know the Mm. like all of the symbology of what the zombie represents and how that's been used at different points in time and i think that in this moment you could almost like apply a reading of the wendigo as much as we at the end of the book find out that it is extra dimensional in nature Mm -hmm. in its point of origin it feels like for a lot of the book that the Wendigo is basically just this embodiment of the viciousness that was there at the Civil War and the resentment of one another and the pains and scars that were still left behind and not necessarily treated after the war was over and how it would not really ever heal over. And I think that the assumption that Maggie has that as soon as she sees some sort of monstrous threatening other and equates it with the only recognisable other that she deems as unhumanly unfamiliar, it's she thinks that it's a black man, and mm. it's only when she gets a closer look that she realises she was wrong. I think that's a sign that the monstrous impulse is not something that comes from outside it's something that comes from within yeah it also occurs to me that and i don't actually remember now whether this was something that was covered in the cartographer's handbook or actually comes up very possibly at the beginning of steamheart is that the wendigo plague so to speak it's not actually a spoiler especially when this is something that came up as a result of the final story with calvin wilson where he specifically went up north and found there was a wind door up in the wilds of canada Mm. and so therefore part of it was like well 
why does it feel like the Wendigo are coming from multiple different places here? We do know that as far as the U.S. Which is concerned... I am just realizing, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that is very much a point of vulnerability and something that they are not prepared for within the United States because mm. the previous conflict was very much a case of you have the fighting line is divided between north and south to mm. have a feeling of the plague spreading from not only the north and south but just multiple points of origin and even from east from the Ishmaelia and that landed in Virginia according yes. to the account that was in the cartographer's handbook mm. and that was the plague coming over literally from mm. the other side of the ocean yes Virginia could still be considered quote unquote part of the south mm. but honestly that's far enough north at this point that it posed more of a threat to northern territories than the original outbreak, which appeared to happen in Mississippi. But yeah, my point is very much that it feels like the at this point in time, the American people were so sort of focused on each other. They were, it was the North looking down at the South, the South looking up at the North, that when the Wendigo kind of came from all sides they just like it literally caught them from a blind spot mm -hmm. anyway i interrupted you i'm sorry no it's okay i um i guess my point in bringing up this topic in general is to say that in re-experiencing maggie struthers story mm -hmm. it's not impossible for me to have empathy for her and her people just based in how that story is described just mm. based in how that story is narrated mm. human treatment yeah exactly i won't ever forget that the beginning of how i was introduced to her was through her clear distaste for black people but there are definitely elements in her account that invoke some of the same stuff back when you and i were covering let them go mm. and I, I i think we would both consider ourselves to have pretty healthy empathy in general mm. so it's not like we can completely close our hearts to this. And the idea that um, at the end of the account, how they say that the community was completely overrun a short time after the account was given. Which you makes know, us think that Maggie is dead. Yeah, exactly. Mm. That Maggie is dead, that very likely, if there are any survivors of that community, they would be few and far between that small part of America has been utterly destroyed. Mm. You can't not feel their pain, mm. so to speak. But then, of course, immediately after that, you have Henry Jackson's account, which he... And is... that gets complicated. Yes, that gets very complicated. The dissolution of the Charlottesville community where empathy for their own led to its destruction because they could not kill Helen Henshaw before she spread the plague, is a tragedy, and understandable. 
It's the kind of story we see all the time in zombie narratives and the like. One could have an uncharitable reading and suggest that maybe it was poetic justice that a racist community got what they deserved. After all, in 2017, Charlottesville is where alt-right protests happened with the tiki torches and resulted in the death of Heather Hare. And while that's not the fault of the city itself, it's hard not to pattern-match similarities. It's even easier to be angry when Henry Jackson gives his account about their unnamed shameful town by the Mississippi River, and how white men murdered an entire black family without cause as children watched, and then proceeded to do the same to all other remaining families over the course of weeks. Jackson suggested it happened because they believed black people were responsible for the plague. For myself, I can't help but think that they would have killed those families with even less provocation. That they were killed merely for the crime of existing. And that's the horrible thing. Like, well, that's not the only horrible thing, of course, but that's such a mindless act is that if most of the black families within this community were extricating themselves anyway then if these white people had done absolutely nothing, then there would have been no black people around anyway. They were already extricating themselves, so it really is just senseless violence. Well, that's the thing, is that we view it as senseless violence because why would you even, how could you come to that point? The people that committed this violent act, to them, at least, it had a sense behind it. They were feeling powerless, and so therefore they needed to enact power on others. And as someone that can appreciate that from a certain level, from a level of there are people in power that... I wish were not, and I wish I had the ability to ensure that they never had power over us again. Mm. This is very much a case of the people with power punching down at those that had very little Mm. and being base and cruel and enjoying the baseness and the cruelty. The cruelty is the point, is a phrase that gets repeated a lot these days. To those kind of people that don't just have opinions, wrong opinions, but choose to act upon them, just makes me just want to say, just just fuck it. Just fuck it all. I hope that they no longer exist. Yeah. And, And this is purely in a fictional setting, but I still feel that way. It's this feeling of... I use this precise wording that comes from Tiger's Eye a lot and to sum up my feeling of people who just make the world a worse place that do so much wrong. And to me, I have impulses where I wish that a certain amount of exaggerated retribution could be exacted upon them because it feels like some sort of sense of the harm they do put into a 
it's it's just some way of responding to it but mm -hmm. at the end of the day what i that's not what i actually want all that i want is that for people like this whether they be fictional characters or real people with a real effect on the world is to just go mm. it's a bile that i want to get out of my system and yeah yeah i i feel like i should have laid this out better maybe that i shouldn't have led with maggie struthers and henry jackson someone recently gave me the advice of that if you're going to be talking about heavy stuff then sandwich it with good or neutral stuff on one side and then good or neutral stuff on the other side I front-loaded a lot of the difficult conversation right here at the beginning. The beginning of this podcast, anyway. It's not the first episode of this podcast. Or rather, the first episode of our take on cartographers or anything like that. But, well, I, now that we Thinking about where we left things off last time, I mm. think we may, in a broader sense, have accomplished that. So all we have to do is make sure that the next thing that comes is light and breezy. Now... Let's see. Uh, oh. But okay, yeah. No, this is gonna be harder <laughs> than I thought. This is the honest truth, people. There is a reason why we held off on this book. As has been said before, it's dry and heavy, and very light on any element that helps stave off the darkness of this world. Toby and I will be discussing Nightfall of the Wendigo soon, which is also a dark, difficult book due to the places that all our main characters are at, and the themes of the novel, and the plot elements of the story. And yet that book still has more humor, or moments of awesome, or scenes with beauty and empathy than the handbook does. That doesn't make this book bad, per se. It just means that most of our coverage of the vignettes are themselves heavy and take us to dark places. And the humor and pleasure we find in covering it is somewhat in spite of the material as well as knowing that better times are ahead of us in Arlington and future novels. The vignettes we're going to be talking about now are not as heavy as the ones we just covered, purely by nature because of... Because how could they? Yeah, exactly. We, we've already talked about the most difficult parts of it, but when we talk about stories that end in tragedy, then the stories of Bo Travis and James Gregory would... Be on that list. Um, <sighs> in that the case, the narration of James Gregory's section is just so sad. The, yeah, yeah. The, the and I say that not just because of the content or the ending of it. it. It's how the voice actor reads it out. I don't have their name to hand, but according to the credits, James Gregory is voiced by Mark Ord, who unfortunately I know very little about. Just them introducing themselves at the start of the way he says james gregory it just feels like this person has a weight to just not even like and i kind of feel this may be somewhat intentional is that he feels a weight to even having to admit that he is james gregory what what do you mean by that by that i mean that like his account is very much him confessing what happened and his like we can judge for ourselves but like he feels responsible for 
what happened and how this disaster was exacerbated and made worse because he failed in his duties. Mm. So I think that he, in this confession of his own culpability, that when at the start he you see him you hear him read out his own name his sort of remorse at even saying those two words of james gregory feels like he feels remorse that he is this man who has done this and it just yeah when i look at his story he begins his account by as you say saying that he has to live with the knowledge that this hell was partly of his making. Mm -hmm. And he feels regret for what happened because of what happened, because of the depth of what happened. Mm. But honestly, this was his job to be a harbor master. He had no idea of what was actually going to be on board the Ismailia. Mm. But he, he, as the harbor master, he was in charge of all of the men that died as he mm. was trying to guide the ship in or to deploy his forces in such a way to protect both the quote-unquote lives on board as well as anybody that the ship might have run into as mm. a result of trying not to bring it under control. But mm. it's like... When he says that this was a hell of his own making, what else was he supposed to do? It it, it implies a deliberateness which is absolutely not there, but mm. I think that you definitely get the sense that he is a good man, and mm. even though he could have had no way of knowing, he did everything in his power to prevent it, he would, of course, nevertheless feel an acute awareness of the number of people who are affected by his actions or like i think that because he knows what has happened because of what happened on that day he would have endlessly replayed ways that maybe he could have done things differently or better i think that whatever excuses or whatever he could say or others could say to try and alleviate some of that responsibility, he would have always had an acute awareness that it was not enough, no matter how you sliced it. It is possible to commit no mistakes and still lose. That is not a weakness. That is life. I think that his guilt probably also stems a little bit from the fact that, as his account relates, these were men that he knew, their mm. good parts and their bad parts, and therefore it feels differently for him than if there were people that died that he had no connection to at all. Mm. And honestly, some of what he says and what you were talking about a moment ago about you know the virtue of hindsight and would he have done things differently had he known... Some mm. of those elements were present in Maggie Struthers' account as well, in terms mm. of, like, had they known what had happened to the woman that they wanted to protect, not knowing that she was infected with the Wendigo Plague, Maggie would have shot her between the eyes had she known then 
what mm. she only knew afterwards as part mm. of the account that she gives. Yeah. And that's what colors so much of Cartographer's Handbook as a different type of narrative to let them go because let them go is experienced in the present whereas mm -hmm. cartographer's handbook as you mentioned at the start of the session it is a retrospective account it is mm -hmm. something that happened in the past so you're not just getting an account of the events you're getting an insight into how the narrators feel about those events in the time since Right. And... Let Them Go is a sequence of events that is playing out before our eyes. And mm. so therefore people responding to it in real time. Yes, there's uh, a sort any... of active flux to how the situation could develop, whereas Cartographers is set in stone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. While we're on the subject of James Gregory, I will have to double check this. So uh, if I'm wrong, then future Greg can say, shut up, Toby. But if I'm <laughs> right, then you can hold off on that. But I believe that a little sort of cameo slash like extra detail of his character is that in the definitive edition of Secret Rooms, when we hear about what happened to James at the outbreak of the Wendigo, when he was caught up in a crowd, when all hell was breaking loose, there was someone who helped him up on his feet and told him to like, you know, get away from all this. And basically that was the person who saved his life. I think I you might think, be right. I, yeah, think I, I think I'm vaguely remembering this now, yes. yes. I believe that that is meant to be James Gregory, who probably not long after everything that he talks about in this account, he managed to, as much as he talks about all the people who died as a result of his actions, he leaves out the efforts he made to save lives and how there were probably some lives that were saved because of what he did on the day for those of you curious as to how you could have missed this detail this really is an easter egg that you'd only know if you'd heard alex talk about it in chapter one of the definitive edition james is pulled from danger by a nameless scotsman that does not have a voice in the text this appears to have been gregory who is with the throng of people escaping into virginia from the wendigo that arrived on the ismalia it's also here that I want to correct something that I said earlier when mentioning that the Ismailia arrived in Virginia. I had a brain fart because the account that James Gregory gives is in Manassas, Virginia, but the harbor that he was in charge of was back in New York City. I like that because it gives a certain amount of, like, even if he didn't necessarily feel it at the end, it gives him a somewhat of the redemption that he deserved in the sense that at the very least, he had helped someone. And it's what, at least for me, sweetens the utter tragedy of hearing this sad man who you just want to comfort in some way and hearing that he was stabbed to death in his bunk just a few days later or not long after giving this account. It's, it's also very confusing because, like, obviously we're seeing the internal strife of what the way he feels and the mm. way he blames himself for what happened. And in the case of the previous story of Bo Travis, where his story comes to a tragic end because he was basically speaking out against the established order or the, the, the people in charge of the military encampment that he was a part of, where he was deliberately executed as a part of court-martial. 
James Gregory was anonymously stabbed while he slept. Mm. And that makes me wonder, was he killed for like his stuff? Or was he killed because there was someone that blamed him for the way the Ismalia turned out? I think it's the latter. And it's one of those things of how would someone have known? But I think mm. that it probably was a result of him giving this account that word may have gotten around. And the darkest possibility in my mind is that whichever who whichever cartographer or cartographers who heard this may it may have been someone there, like someone from their account, because we don't know who killed him or why. Mm. And it's entirely possible that it was someone who heard the entirety of this account and, like James Gregory, concluded that it was, in fact, his fault, which is what gives it a tragic feeling. And the reason why cartographers at its darkest moments feels as dark as it is is because it's cemented. This is history. And for James Gregory, there is no room for building oneself up from this even though that's what a lot of the latter parts of the book are about is building a better future but for men and women like James Gregory there is no future there is no way that they could feel atonement for what they blamed themselves Mm. we've talked before about the books the handbook are inspired by and in the case of World War Z the in-universe writer that collects the vignettes of the past and present of that world all survived the zombie apocalypse. He found them in the various places that they are now to tell about their experiences over the span from outbreak to societal collapse to survival and finally to rebuilding something out of the ashes of the old. But the handbook is full of accounts from people that are now dead and gone some long before anyone from the RSA came to collect their stories. That casts a different flavor over the handbook, regardless of the feelings or potential wrongs committed by its contributors. The thing that I wanted to talk about that sort of spirals off from that Mm -hmm. is that after the account with Jackson, where people are committing violence upon black families as a result of their fear and their hatred and therefore relating it back to what potentially became of James Gregory because of his account or his actions or anything like that. Mm. There's a, there's a bit of a commonality there. It's just that there's no, there isn't a racial component. This is kind of the horror of what people do in response to not being able to properly process their pain and their grief and all that sort of thing. Mm. Um, I know that Alex is a big fan of Babylon five. Is that a, um, and I know that you, you still haven't watched deep space nine, which was one of the contenders for the Babylon five audience back in the day. Did you ever watch that show at all? (laughs) okay fair enough and i don't want to get off on too long of a tangent but the thing that comes to mind is in the world of babylon 5 which has telepaths 
one of the things that they include as a part of their overarching world building is that in place of the death penalty, the thing that they have come up with, especially in order to decrease prison populations and such like, was that if someone's crime has been to the point of where it has been deemed dark enough that this punishment is necessary, they would subject them to something called the death of personality, which is essentially the idea of we are going to completely destroy the personality that committed these crimes, and we're going to have a telepath create a new one in the body that exists, and then the body, the new personality, so to speak, will go on and do community work that will hopefully make up for the crimes that the person that used to inhabit that body committed while they were alive. Does the new personality have any knowledge or like is informed of why they're doing this community service as penance and punishment? No. Ideally, the experience is, is that they are just very empathetic, giving people that want to go out and do this work for the betterment of communities, so to speak. So do they Um, know that they are being sent out to do community service, or is it more that, like, from their point of view, they're living a free will life, but they just don't know that, oh, okay. Yeah, it's a genuine life, and, but to be perfectly honest, now that they are someone completely new, they are often very happy with doing the work that they are doing, Mm. And you can draw different inferences as to, you know, the fact that technically you are actually killing somebody. It's just a different kind of death, because if you can't remember who you were, then that person is not there anymore. It's something that Mm. we get into, Mm. something that I have gotten into when discussing the movie Memento and stuff like that. Yeah. But in this particular case, the story that is involved is that... The character played by an actor that you may be familiar with, Brad Dourif. Dourif has one of those faces and voices that most often lends itself to dark, troubled individuals or villains, such as the possessed doll Chucky, the twisted scientist Gediman in Alien Resurrection, the violent telepath Lon Suter in Star Trek Voyager, or the tormented Dr. Cochran in Deadwood. But most audiences will know him for his memorable turn as Grima Wormtongue in the Lord of the Rings movies. Oh, yeah. He plays a monk that is just a very giving and gentle person. And he discovers that he was one of those people who was sentenced to death of the personality. But a telepath was basically able to go in and find fragments of the person that was, not in order to bring them back, but to make them remember enough of the life that the psychopath that he used to be did so that the families of the people he killed, because he was a serial killer, so that he would know what he had done. They didn't want to kill his body now without him feeling some level of guilt for the crimes that he committed. Mm. And that says far more about 
this problematic way in how we can't process grief or more accurately in how we want to punish those that have done us harm, mm. whether it's rational or not. And yes. that's the story of Henry Jackson and the story of James Gregory writ large in terms of this is a unclean aspect of the human psyche. Like it may, they may have some cultural element as well, but I suspect it's something that's going to prop up no matter where you go in civilized society. Whether we're talking about powerful economic nations steeped in expansionist empire and colonialism, or Africa, or India, or Japan, or really wherever you go, the idea of vengeance in general mm. is a pretty common theme, and it's just framed differently depending on the culture that it comes into contact with. Mm. It's I'm my my head is still caught up on the scenario you laid down from uh, Babylon Five. Babylon Five, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, because I would... to me that's it's such a kind of worms like a sort of philosophical <laughs> one because it's the at that point you're sort of saying is them doing the sort of community service that's not really atonement necessarily because you don't know I what suppose, you're atoning for well that's the thing is is atonement something that exists for those in, negatively impacted upon or is it for the individual to find some way of after they've confronted and accepted the wrong they have committed to be able to kind of settle it's uh, rebalance the scales rather um but well, see, that's the yeah. thing is that the idea of restorative justice mm. is a very modern theme and is meant to incorporate like people who realize that what they did was wrong and instead of punishing them, to deliberately give them the opportunity to correct the consequences of what they might have done in such a way that it does in fact make up for whatever crimes might have resulted from their words or actions or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And it implies the idea of invoking empathy in them and they this is something that they want to do rather than something they are punished for having had done yeah uh, in the case of the story that i just related to you from babylon 5 they don't know what they've done and mm. while they are there to make it up to the communities that they harmed they also are generally put into jobs where they will not come into contact with the people that they've harmed. So I think specifically in order to try and avoid this potential scenario from happening, and it didn't matter because in this case, they literally put him in with an order that left the colony that he was originally at and came all the way to a space station deep in the middle of, you know, like bordering alien territories and such like and the people that wanted to punish him still found him anyway mm. uh 
So here's a situation yeah. where the system didn't work, regardless mm -hmm. of how you feel about said system. That was an unexpected tangent, but that does happen from time to time in this show. And while some parts of Babylon 5 have not aged as well as others due to it being a very 90s show, I'd still recommend it. There are some thematic resonances with New Century, particularly in how it comes to grips with its own plot of Earth turning to a more totalitarian government after the existing democracy is abused and a power-hungry fascist president rises to power. But let's get back on topic. I think that in this instance, the in New Century, the tragedy lies in the idea that this is someone who very much like wants to atone or feels immense guilt, who doesn't really have the opportunity to atone anymore. He has, mm -hmm. like, which I think is why the vengeance inflicted upon him is feels as cruel as it does because it inflicted upon someone who already had, I think, paid for what he had done, even if we don't think he necessarily had done anything all that wrong. He did his best, but mm -hmm. it's just an immensely sad conclusion. What do the stories of Bo Travis and James Gregory teach us? Men that spoke the truth as they saw it and seemed compelled by reason and honesty and yet were rewarded by death at the hands of their fellow men. I think it teaches us that Thomas prioritizes truth, reasoning, and being informed on as much of the state of the country and the sequence of events that led to this as possible. By offering means of educating ourselves, more people may avoid future instances of people lashing out at those they wrongfully perceive as responsible for or exacerbating the current state of the world. It's why Thomas objected to the inclusion of burning the handbook should it fall into enemy hands, and we hear about that later, because the point of this book is to inform everyone of the facts and hopefully reach the eyes and ears of those who are willing to listen. Yeah, that is one of the things that he directly gets into in terms of why he didn't want the books burned, and there is a certain degree of logic and understanding behind the hope for mimetic spread mm. of the ideas presented in the handbook. You know, that's one of the mm. truisms of the world of the idea that an idea is very hard to kill mm. and so therefore should be given every opportunity to proliferate. Flourish. Although, flourish, yeah, exactly. Although, mm. on top of that, not all ideas are good ideas. So the difficulty behind that, it goes both ways, unfortunately, and is part of the reason why we still have problems today in regards to those bad ideas proliferating on the internet. Um, mm -hmm. Trying, okay, new century, new century. New century, new century. New century. That might be a frustrating note to end on, but about ten minutes after this, during our first Skype session on the Dramatis Personae of the handbook, we started having serious technical issues that you might have heard me mention on the Discord.
this is as good a place to stop as any, since the very next topic at hand was going to be revisiting the story of Weirwood in full. And that will go on for some time, not to mention that it will be a strong opening for next week. This week proves to be as heavy in places as the last was, both on a personal level due to some frustrations with my car and replacing my mom's washer-dryer unit, and also in regards to more police violence in the U.S., even as the murderer of George Floyd is found guilty on all counts. In all of this, I cannot help but be thankful for my partner Toby, for continuing on this journey with me to process the story of New Century, as well as difficult current events. Earlier today, we had a great beginning to our discussion on Nightfall of the Wendigo, which we will finish in a few days. Our energy bounces off each other like a perfect back-and-forth of an expert tennis match as we help each other through these weighty topics. And I am also thankful for Maureen, who has been a constant companion for weeks now, as we have helped each other in ways big and small, and I look forward to our first in-person meeting in May. Their help makes these conversations easier, makes life easier, makes dealing with our ongoing frustrations with the world easier. To close us out, I have mentioned the music of Bruce Hornsby and the Range before on this show as being particularly affecting. But in this case, a different artist took a message from Hornsby's 1986 hit, The Way It Is, and resampled it into the experience of a black man in 90s America. Long before Barack Obama was president, this rap artist was heralded for his lyrical flow and the messages in his music before he was tragically gunned down at age 25. This piece was released posthumously two years later in 1998 and combines the old with the new in a powerful and beautiful combination. Until next time, this is Tupac Shakur with Changes. In the morning and I ask myself It's like worth living, should I blast myself? I'm tired of being poor and even worse, I'm black My stomach hurts, so I'm looking for a purse to snatch Cops give a damn about a Negro Pull a trigger, kill a nigga, he's a hero Get it back to the kids, who the hell cares? One less hungry mouth on the welfare First ship him dope and let him deal with brothers Give him guns, step back, watch him kill each other It's time to fight back, that's what Huey said Two shots in the dark, now Huey's dead I got love for my brothers, but we can never go nowhere Unless we share with each other we gotta start making changes Learn to see me as a brother instead of two distant strangers And that's how I was supposed to be How can the devil take a brother if he's close to me? Uh, I let it go back to when we played as kids But then change, and that's the way it is Come on, come on That's just the way it is Things will never be the same That's just the way it is Oh yeah Just the way it is. Things will never be the same. Oh yeah. I see no 
changes. All I see is racist faces. Misplaced hate makes disgrace to racist. We under, I wonder what it takes to make this. One better place, let's erase the waste. Take the evil out the people, they'll be acting right. Cause both black and white and smoke a crack tonight. And the only time we chill is when we kill each other. It takes skills so we real time to heal each other. And although it seems evident, we ain't ready to see a black president. Uh, it ain't a secret, no conceal the fact. A penitentiary's packed and it's filled with blacks. But some things will never change. Try to show another way, but you're staying in the dope game. Now tell me what's a mother to do. Being real don't appeal to the brother in you. You gotta operate the easy way. I made a G today. But you made it in a sleazy way. Sell it back to the kids. I gotta get paid. But hey, well, that's the way it is. Come on. Come on. That's just the way it is. Things will never be the same. That's just the way it is. Oh, yeah. Just the way it is. Oh, yeah. 